Shabbat Shalom and welcome to the Mussan household. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. As I light our Shabbat candles to set apart this special gift for our family, may it remind us all of the light of Messiah that shines in us and in our home. As I cover my eyes, may we be reminded that before Messiah opens our eyes, we cannot see the glories and the joy of all on which his light sheds understanding. With my hands, I spread the light of the candles throughout our home to express my desire as a wife and mother that the light of Messiah and the joy of his Shabbat rest be spread throughout our home. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Malech HaOlam, Asher Kidshanu B'Mitzvotav, Vitzivanu Lehiot or Legoyim Vanatan Lanu, Et Yeshua Meshikenu or HaOlam. Blessed are you, Adonai our Elohim, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua, our Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now for the Kiddush. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Borei Amen. Blessed are you, Adonai Elohim, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. And now, for the blessing over the bread. Amotzi lechem min haaretz, we give thanks to Yah for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Amotzi lechem min haaretz, Amen. Blessed are you, Adonai Elohim, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. And now, the blessing for the wife. Adonai, my Elohim, thank you for the incredibly wonderful wife that you have been so gracious to bless me with. May she be, as it says in your word, a woman of valor, more precious than jewels, in whom my heart may trust and my fortune is found. Amen. And the blessing for the husband. Adonai, my Elohim, I thank you for the husband that you have been so gracious to bless me with. May he be, as it says in your word, a man whose delight is in your Torah. May he be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Amen. Blessing for the children. Behold! Children are a gift of Adonai. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Blessing for the sons. Yisimcha Elohim ke'Ephraim v'ki Manasseh. May Elohim make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Adonai, my Elohim, I thank you for the sons that you have given me. May they be, as it says in your word, men whose delight is in your holy Torah, gracious, compassionate, and righteous, fearing no evil, but with a steadfast heart to 
trusting in you. Amen. And the blessing for our daughters. Adonai, our Elohim, we thank you for the daughters that you have blessed us with. May they be, as it says in your word, women of valor, more precious than jewels, arrayed in strength and majesty, and whose mouths open with wisdom so that the teaching of kindness may be upon their tongues. Amen. Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom. May the peace of Adonai be with you always. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruch the call to worship. Baruch et Adonai Hamvorach. Baruch Adonai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha, Baelim Adonai. Michamocha, Nedar Bakodesh. Nora Tehilot. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none Amen. And now the blessing of Messiah. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher natan lanu et derech ha-Yeshua ba-Mashiach Yeshua. All together, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et ha-Shabbat. La'asot et ha-Shabbat la-doratam barit olam. B'nei uvayan b'nei Yisrael oti le'olam. Kishishet yamin asa aronai et hashemayim va et haralets uvayom hashvi'i shvat vayenefash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto Le'olam va'ed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. 
Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Aronai Elochecha. Bechol levavcha, uvchol nafshecha, uvchol meyodecha. Vahayu hadevarim ha'alei asher anochi mitzavcha hayom al levavcha. Veshinantam levanecha, vilibartabam, veshivtecha, bebeftcha, uvlechtecha, vederech, uvshuch becha, uvkumicha. Uksartam leot al yedecha, vahayu letotafot benanecha. Uktaftam al mezuzot betecha uvisharecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries. Welcome to our Arab Shabbat broadcast. Uh, this year, as you've, if you've been following us, we're touching on the Torah portion, but also emphasizing the Haftorah portion, or the portion that comes from the prophets and the other writings that go with the Torah portion that are thematically consistent. This, uh, this Shabbat, we are in the second portion of the book of Exodus, we're in the story of now Moses going to see Pharaoh, going back to Egypt, and the effort to get the children of Israel released from Egypt, and to uh, and as what will follow in this portion is the first six judgments that will fall upon Egypt in an effort to release the children of Israel. Um, I always like to emphasize this point when we remember this, uh, because this is the crux of this whole dynamic of the Egyptian exodus. You know, God, who the God of Israel, who is not being regarded uh, by the Egyptians, nor are the children of Israel really knowing how to trust Him the dynamics come together for this great story of redemption. And what we begin in our Torah portion uh, is we begin with Moses has initially gone to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has just summarily rejected uh, Moses' demand and request that the Hebrew people be set free. And he's complaining to God. Uh, I really like this part of it because it really gets to the heart, uh, I think, for all of us in terms of trying to understand God's plan of redemption, not only historically, but also how's it work for us and especially for the future. Let me take you very briefly back to Genesis chapter 5, begin at verse 22. The last couple of verses, it says this, Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why hast thou brought harm to this people? Why didst thou ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, he has done uh, harm to this people, and thou hast not delivered thy people at all. Uh, a very interesting set of questions. Moses was at the burning bush. He's been commissioned. He has that staff. Uh, he, he's been sent forward with God, you know, speaking out of the burning bush to go deliver the people. He goes there. He presents himself to the people. Uh, he shows the signs. He's getting the people to kind of follow him. He goes and confronts Pharaoh, and the first thing that happens is Pharaoh says, you know, yawn, you know, who cares? I've never heard of the God of the Hebrews. You know, Moses, or excuse me, Pharaoh 
has heard of lots of gods. In fact, in Egypt they had many gods. In fact, even Pharaoh was considered to be a god. But he'd never heard of the God of the Hebrews. And so as a result, he wasn't going to respond to it. Um, interesting dynamic. Uh, let me draw an immediate application for you. We live in the same world today. There is a God of Israel. And we are people who trust and believe in him. But there's a lot of people in the world, especially a lot of nations and a lot of world leaders, they don't believe in the God of the Hebrews. They don't really don't know about him. Oh, they've heard about the history of, in the Bible, they've heard about the history of Israel and so forth. But they, they really don't know who this God is. And so when a forceful statement is made with regard to you may be accountable to this God, oh, you know, be careful, uh, this God's got a day of the Lord coming and he's going to hold you in judgment. And so yawn. They don't know him. You know, why should that influence them? Same dynamic going on today when Moses went to confront Pharaoh and those that were in leadership in Egypt at the time. So let's listen to, and this is what the Torah portion about, this is God's response to that dynamic. Chapter 6, beginning of verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he shall let them go, and under compulsion he shall drive them out of the land. And God spoke further to Moses and said to him, <clears throat> I am the Lord. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, and it says Lord here in my English Bible, but it's all capitalized, so it's Yahweh, or Y, as we say in the English, Y-H-V-A-H, or um, yod heh vav -He in the Hebrew. I did not make myself known to him. He specifically is talking about that there were certain things that even the fathers knew about him, but there are certain things they didn't know about me. And now, because of this dynamic, I'm going to reveal more of me, the Lord, to you and to the world that even your fathers didn't know about me. So he's really stepping up, if you will, to the challenge and going to reveal even more about Almighty God uh, to him. And he says, verse 4, And I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. And furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because of the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also return to you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments, and I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. I want you to notice that from God's standpoint, the ultimate goal with regard to this confrontation with Egypt was so that his people would know who their God is. And I would submit to you that that's what's going to happen to us in the end of days. Yeah, we're going to have this uh, 
stressful time, we're going to have pharaohs who don't believe in the, our God, and there's going to be under compulsion, there's going to be a lot of things happen, and in the result, in result, they're going to be judged, just like the Egyptians. They're, they're going to get wiped out. Um, but what the end result will be, you and I will be in the kingdom and we'll know who our God really is. And we'll know He's really our God and we're really His people. That is what God has orchestrated here. And that goal is way more than He just wants to see Israel pulled out from under the oppressors and saved from bondage in Egypt. God's purpose in saving you from your sins is more than just saving you. His real purpose is for you to know who he really is and come to know who he really is. Now that's the, the leading principle that we find in the Torah portion. That is, that's how the whole story of the Egyptian exodus uh, begins. So our Haftor portion that goes with this portion is a rather interesting passage that comes from Ezekiel chapter 28, and guess what it's going to say? And the parallel why this passage is going to tie back. It's going to make that same statement, and it's going to address what God will do with Egypt. So with me uh, to Ezekiel 28, let's begin at verse 25. See if this doesn't sound like what we heard when God spoke to Moses about dealing with Egypt in his day. Thus says the Lord God, when I gathered the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they have scattered, and shall manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations, then they will live in their land which I gave to my servant Jacob. And they will live in it securely, and they will build houses and plant vineyards and live securely when I execute judgments upon all those who scorn them round about them. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. That's the parallel passage that goes with our passage in Exodus. But here's an interesting thing that took place. This particular prophet, Ezekiel, when he wrote this, we believe that he was in Babylonian captivity. We believe that Babylon had come and captured Jerusalem and the Jewish people and had taken them captive over to Babylon. And Ezekiel was a prophet to the house of Judah in Babylonian captivity. And so he wrote this prophecy, and in the day that he said it, the people there that are in captivity, they're going, yes, we want to come back from Babylon. We want to go back to the land. You know, it's, it's like our ancestors. When they were in Egypt, they want to leave Egypt, and they want to go back and go to the promised land like it was promised to Abraham, our father. And they find themselves in the same situation. And so uh, Ezekiel starts to give this prophecy, speaking of the same kinds of things, that occurred with Moses and the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. And to show you how there's this strong connection to Egypt, look at chapter 29 of Ezekiel, and guess what he begins to say there? In the tenth year, in the tenth month, and on the twelfth of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, 
set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Now, let me go ahead and explain the dynamics in the day of Ezekiel and the Babylonian captivity. The Egyptians had, were a major military power to the south and west of where Israel was. To the north and further to the east were the Babylonians. They were a major military power. And the Babylonians didn't get along with the Egyptians. And Israel is right in the middle of this thing. And Israel made a huge mistake that Jeremiah the prophet warned them against. They decided to side with the Egyptians against Babylon. Well, guess what happened? Babylon came and attacked Israel because they were allied with Egypt. And that's the reason why the house of Judah went into captivity to Babylon. They made a huge strategic mistake beyond what Jeremiah and the prophets had warned the people about. So part of what this prophecy is going to say here now that Ezekiel's giving to us in this portion, he's going to speak to his present day situation and basically he's going to say this, oh by the way, you Egyptians, who, by the way, they double-crossed Israel. They said they would fight with Israel when the Babylonians came? Nah, they didn't show up. So Israel was at the mercy of the Babylonians. So the prophet is speaking to Egypt and telling them of the great judgment that's going to come to them, that God's going to judge Egypt. All right, so we've got the basic present tense down in Ezekiel's day. We understand the dynamics, strategically what took place, and so forth. But now we have to go back to those opening words. And I want you to take note of something that Ezekiel says here in particularly in light of us and in our day. Let me read it to you again, verse 25. When I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered. Ezekiel was the house of Judah. It was one nation they went into captivity, Babylon. But Ezekiel is writing about the whole house of Israel. He's writing about the house of Israel, the northern kingdom, how they're scattered in the nations and that God's going to bring them back to the land. We're talking about a much different scenario than just the one that was happening in Ezekiel's day. We're talking about after the Babylonian exile. We're talking about when all of Israel the house of Israel and the house of Judah both went into captivity in all the nations of the world. And about God's intent to be, have another exodus to bring them back from where they're at to come back to the land. If we go to Jeremiah chapter 16 and also chapter 23, Jeremiah, speaking on this exact same subject, says the following words. The day is coming when you will say the word Exodus, and you're not going to be talking about ancient Egypt. You're not going to be talking about ancient Egypt when Moses was there and brought the children of Israel out. You're not going to be talking about ancient Egypt that double-crossed the house of Judah 
when Israel, where Judah went into Babylonian captivity. We're not going to talk about that one. We're talking about a future time when Israel scattered into all the nations of the world, and God says the word Exodus isn't going to be referring to them. It's going to be referring to this last time when all of God's people come from the north, the south, the east, the west, from all the different nations where they've been scattered. This is the same thing that Moses said at the end of the Torah in Deuteronomy chapter 30, that there's a day coming, he said, when we will have seen the blessing and the curse. We will have seen what God was doing with all of Israel, and we will recall it to mind while we are sitting in all the different nations that we've been scattered to by God in, in the judgment of that, and that we will recall it to mind, and then God is going to gather us up from all the different nations, and he will bring us back. In effect, saying what Moses was saying, I just completed the Egyptian exodus. There's going to be another exodus way at the end of the ages, and that will be an even greater one. That is what Ezekiel's talking about. Ezekiel is sitting there in Babylonian captivity, and he's telling them there's still something yet future that will be even greater. Oh, by the way, Egypt will be destroyed. Now, how in the world does Egypt fit into the greater exodus? I mean, if all the people are coming from all the different nations, then how can this language uh, that's being used by Ezekiel, and if I take you back there again to uh, chapter 29, and uh, um, if you go through all of chapter 29, he talks about the end result is I'm going to deal with Egypt, so that verse 16, then they will know that I am the Lord God. Again, that is exactly what we were talking about before, the real purpose of the Exodus, so that you will know the Lord. But then look at chapter 30, it flows. You do realize these chapter separations, there weren't any when they were originally written. This is a continuous thought. And if you look in chapter 30 and verse 1, it says, Then the word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, a wail, alas for the day, for the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a day of doom for the nations, and a sword will come upon Egypt. Now the day of the Lord, by all the prophets, is at the end of the ages as a part of the greater exodus. There's no question about it. I mean, you can go through all the different prophets, do any basic interpretation. They all link together. The whole book of Revelation is dealing with it. So here's Ezekiel. He's talking about the present day situation. And this is the Hoftoe portion remembering us about things that happened in the original Exodus. But it's speaking to and alluding to another Exodus way at the end that would involve the last generation. And he says the following, the day of the Lord is near and a sword is ready for Egypt. Now, <clears throat> how do we get Egypt into this scenario for the greater exodus? If the greater exodus is coming from all the different nations, what, why is the prophet still talking about Egypt? Here's the reason. It's the meaning of the word Egypt. 
The word in the Hebrew is actually mitzrayim, which means trials and tribulations. That's what the word Egypt in the Hebrew means, trials and tribulations. Guess what all the prophets refer to these final days and final years of the greater exodus and the coming of the Messiah King to establish his kingdom. It's called the Great Tribulation. You might as well say the Greater Egypt as well. You and I, whether we want to admit it or not, we're stuck in Egypt right now. We've been enslaved by the world system we're at. Oh, yeah, we build houses and we live and we have kids and families and so forth, but we eat what our captors eat. We're subject to the laws of our captors. We're not free people under God. You know, just take, um, if we wanted to obey all the commandments of the Lord right now, if we, all of a sudden, we had an a in, incredible epiphany of understanding in our faith, how could we go and observe all the commandments that we have? We have no temple. We have no priesthood. We can't freely go to Jerusalem. We're stuck here. And we're subject to the laws and the leaders and the people of this land. Um, unless God you know, pulls us out of here and goes back and establishes things in the land of Israel, we're, we're not free. We are still subject to the captivity that came upon our fathers when they disobeyed the Lord and they got kicked out of the land and here we are. But the promise that God is giving here about gathering up his people from all the different nations, that promise wasn't realized by our fathers when they were kicked out of the land. That's going to fall on us. We're the ones that are going to receive this great promise from God. And let me just tell you, whenever we talk about the specific prophesied parts of the Great Tribulation, the different judgments that are to come, the whole prophetic scenario, the abomination of desolation, the coming of the Antichrist, the false prophet, the two witnesses, the 144,000, you know, all the different judgments of Revelation. You know what it's all about? So that we might know who the Lord really is. It's all for that purpose. It's all so that we will know that he is the Lord our God. I saw an interesting quip the other day um, on the Facebook post. Somebody sent one of these things to me. I really liked it, and I shared it to go out to all the folks that I know. And it basically, it, it, it says this. It showed a whole bunch of people sitting in a church. And it says, uh, it doesn't mean that you're a Christian if you go to church. Going to church just means you go to church. And our spirituality for the bulk of us is just an exercise in certain repeated behaviors our depth of our relationship with God is at best shallow. 
we don't, we don't see people who are deeply moved by the Spirit of God. We're all hanging on. We're all got a little bit of a testimony of faith, and we're just kind of treading water here. We're taking our time. We, we keep doing the same consistent things. We keep doing Sabbath. We keep doing the festivals and so forth. But make no mistake about it, we're in, definitely in captivity, and we're pretty limited as to what we can do. And now that the world is getting turning into a mess, we're subject to that too. Whether it be wars or criminal behavior in the streets where it's not even safe to go down the street anymore, diseases, and people full of fear going panicking and going nuts. Those are, that's a very dangerous cocktail uh, to be living in. That's the world we live in. This is truly trials and tribulations. This is Egypt. We're in Egypt. But the wonderful promise that we have here from the prophet, same promise that Moses gave to us, same one that Yeshua talked about in his return, the day is coming when God is going to resolve that, just like God went back and with a series of judgments upon Egypt, released the children of Israel, just like the, um, the, the house of Judah that was in captivity of Babylon. There came a day when they were released and they were able to come back. There's a day coming when we're going to be released and we're going to be going back to the promised land. For most of us, it'll be with our new bodies. We'll be immortals when we make it. Which, by the way, that would actually be a better way to do it, you know, as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, age is creeping up on this generation. And the one thing I take great solace in with the Lord, he said, this generation shall not pass away until all is accomplished. So I'm hoping that I'm part of that generation and I, I've got that little extra there to hang on with, you know, as we get ready for the coming of the Lord. Again, uh, the prophet is giving this warning to Egypt. He's trying to encourage the people, but here's the one and only end time goal. It's not for your salvation. It's not so that you escape. It's so that you might come to know who the Lord really is, that you will know that he is the Lord, our God. So that's our portion for this week. Be encouraged. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If you would please now turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark and then go back one page to Matthew chapter 28 where we will talk about our Brit Hadashah portion for this week. And as always, let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day once again where we can study your word and your instruction. And Father, we thank you for all of the New Testament writers, for the, for the Apostle Paul and for the Messiah and all the words that he spoke to us, encouraging us, strengthening us in our most holy faith. Now, Father, I pray that these words would minister to all of us as we closed out this week and are celebrating your Sabbath. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this time and this opportunity to share your word. We give you all the honor, glory, and praise in this place. It's in your Son, Yeshua, that we pray. Amen. Our Torah portion this week is Va'era, which is uh, the second portion in the book of Exodus, in which Moses is going before Pharaoh. He's going before Pharaoh 
to declare, let the people go. And this is also the portion in which now the plagues start to come upon the Egyptians. The portion begins by God speaking to Moses and talking about how he has appeared before Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his ancestors, and that he is giving the authority to Moses to speak to Pharaoh to go before him and to, to, to speak be, uh, on behalf of the children of Israel, on behalf of the God of Israel, to declare and let the people go. The first part of our Torah portion establishes Moses' authority. It goes through the genealogy of Moses and his brother Aaron to basically say, look, these men are descendants of the children of Israel. They, have, they, they come from that line. That this is their birthright. This is their heritage. And they are the ones who are of Israel speaking for Israel. But then also in our Torah portion, there's a very curious um, phrase that is actually spoken. It's one of those, what I consider to be one of the hidden miracles of the, uh, of what was going on here. We know the, the, the plagues were miracles. They were miraculous, uh, supernatural occurrences. We know that the sign of the staff turning into a serpent, that that was a miracle. But one of the other things that is fascinating to me that is kind of a little bit overlooked is this, is that who in the world was Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh? That when he goes and he appears before him, well, why is Pharaoh even giving an audience to this guy? Why does he have any, so why does he speak for him? He's not a king of any nation. He's not a, a, a ruler of, that is coming to, to have an audience with Pharaoh, to meet with him and to speak with him. But in Exodus chapter 7, we, at the ver verse 1, this is the very fascinating thing. When, when Moses is speaking to the Lord, I should say this, the, the, the verse right before that at the end of chapter 6 of Exodus, Moses is speaking to the Lord and he says, I'm of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh heed me or listen to my words? And the Lord says to Moses in Exodus 7, 1, he says this, See that I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron and your brother shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he continues on to continue to say what God is planning to do with Moses. Moses is going to show and reveal the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the entire world with all of his power. But did you catch that miracle that was basically set is that God said that he would make Moses to be as God to Pharaoh. This is why Pharaoh received Moses every time Moses came forward to speak, is that he was given the authority to speak for God. That's what Moses did when he appeared before Pharaoh, when he spoke to the people. This is why that God, this is why he was chosen by God, and this is what God has put upon him, his testimony, his life, is that he spoke for God. He spoke the word of God, and that authority was bestowed upon him. So why am I telling you all this? Because Moses is the Messiah-like figure of our story and of our scripture. I've already been talking many weeks about Joseph and how that the parallels to the Messiah and the life of Joseph was uncanny. But Moses now, again, has these parallels to the Messiah because Moses is being sent by God. Yeshua was sent by God, too. 
And Moses is being, go, go, being sent to Egypt to deliver the children of Israel out of their bondage, out of where they're stuck, and to bring them out of that land so that then they can be a righteous and holy people and follow His commandments and be brought to the mountain and be, God can make covenant with them. It's the same pattern of God sending Yeshua spiritually by His testimony into the lives of people who are sinners, who are caught up and trapped and in the bondage of their sin and in the bondage of the world, secular as it is, without righteousness, without holiness, and it's a burden to live in such a world. But Messiah comes and He comes to deliver us up out of that world so that we can then walk uprightly before Him, following His words and His commandments, and God can make us His people and make us, give us, uh, have us be in covenant with God through our testimony of Yeshua. The parallel is once again the same. Moses is the Messiah-like figure of our story. And in the same way that Moses appeared as God before Pharaoh to speak on behalf of God, such was the case of the very Son of God, Yeshua of Nazareth. In Matthew chapter 28, after he had risen from the grave and he spoke and he's given us the, the great commission and he speaks the, the, some of the most profound words, once again, another one of those uh, paragraphs of Scripture that kind of send chills down my spine when I read it. And it says that Yeshua spoke in uh, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. This is the last words as recorded by the Gospel of Matthew. It says, Yeshua came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. This is the great commission of the Messiah speaking of the, the, what, what we believe possibly was the last physical words that he spoke before he ascended, before he left this earth in physical form. And he is giving us these words that all authority has been given to him. And that when we go and we hear His words or we hear somebody with the testimony of Yeshua, the authority that is given to a believer in Yeshua to speak and to teach and to share and to minister is an incredible thing. All of it comes from Yeshua. And that when we recall the words of Yeshua, that He speaks with authority. In fact, earlier on in Matthew, one, one, of my favorite, one of my favorite verses or something that's mentioned of Yeshua is that when he, after the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew's chapter, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the very last thing that's said in the, verse 28 of chapter 7, it says this, And so it was, Yeshua ended by saying all these things, and the people were astonished at His teaching, for He taught them as having authority and not as the scribes. Authority. What's the root word of authority? Author. That means the words that were taught by Yeshua in the Sermon on the Mount, which he's speaking a lot of Torah commandments in the Sermon on the Mount, that Yeshua spoke as if he was the author of them, the author of the commandments, the author of the Torah. That's Yeshua. And of course, Yeshua being God, the physical form of God, that he has that authority and speaks with authority that when he opens his mouth, 
When he teaches the word, when he gives commandments and teaching and instruction, and I love that our scriptures all have a lot of red letters in it that show us specifically when Yeshua was speaking, that there is a different level of profundity of those words that we should perhaps take greater note of them. Because we are listening to the very words of the author of the Torah, the author of the Scripture, who has all power and authority over heaven and earth, as it says that he does here. And he gives us the Great Commission. Look, we're to go into the nations, making disciples of all the nations, baptizing the people, cleansing the people. That's what baptism was. Cleansing them of the things that make them unclean and teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. Well, what are all the things that Yeshua commanded? How many commandments did He give? Did He give just two commandments? That He changed the law and the prophets? That some of those words and those letters and those commandments have been done away with? And all Yeshua came teaching is, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And those are the only commandments that Yeshua told us to teach the people. No. He said, those are two commandments that I give you. And He did call them a new commandment, a renewed commandment, as it is in the Hebrew reckoning of thinking. And that it's like that all the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments. So what commandments did Yeshua teach? Like I said, go back to the Sermon on the Mount. Remember when he was saying that, you know, you've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I say to you. You've heard it said that you shall not commit murder, but I say to you, if you do it in your, in your heart, that you've committed murder. All of those things is the, the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest Torah teaching that has ever been given in the history of time. And those are the commandments of Yeshua, the author of the Torah, who spoke with authority. This is the Great Commission to send all the people, all of his believers to go and make disciples of the nations, teaching them all that I have commanded you teaching them Torah, and that He will be with us always, that He will be with us in our hearts, walking by, side by side, leading us with His Holy Spirit, as He spoke in the Gospel of John, giving us the helper and the, the one that, that helps us and leads us and guides us with His Holy Spirit, and that that's what He has given to us to be with us now that we have a testimony and a faith in Yeshua the Messiah. This is what we all have as believers and that we recognize the authority of the Messiah in the same way that when we go into the world, when we speak to somebody and we speak to some ruler in the world, or we speak to some other citizen of the world that is not a believer, that is not a follower of the Messiah, somebody that is worldly and secular. But when we go, and if the Lord is truly with us, and if we are a believer, and if we're speaking the words, and we're just repeating back what God has laid on our hearts, and the words that God has spoken, and maybe we're quoting Scripture at people, they will respond because there is a recognition of authority. God is the creator of heaven and earth. This is one of the things, this is, this is almost like something that we have to believe it is inside ourselves. If any of us ever want to be an evangelist, ever want to be one that is going to minister to somebody else, we have to believe that God is going to speak through us so the words might be received and that they might hear the testimony of the Lord and turn their hearts to the Lord and become a believer as well. It's not by our own power. It's not by our own speech and ability to speak that we ever convict somebody to start believing in the Lord, to start following the Lord, to start uh, on their path of their spiritual journey. 
of becoming a believer and becoming baptized and, and, and getting their first Bible and reading the Word and teaching their families how, how to study the Word and about how, what it is to have a covenant with God. And if somebody is ever on that path and leading it, we have to trust that the Lord is doing that work and that we're not doing it by our own charisma to speak that because I orate words so nicely and speak big words that come out of a, out of a thesaurus and uh, it's this great big vocabulary that that's what wows somebody and woos somebody to start following after the Lord. No, it's, it's not that. I'm not that great of, a, great of a speaker. Nobody really is. And let, you know, the politicians, they work on this to try and be this, but what they're selling doesn't have any substance to it. That's the difference is usually the people that are sharing the word of the Lord you know, actually, the way we speak, we, we kind of mess up sometimes. But the substance behind what we're saying has all power and authority over heaven and earth, the Word of God. So that's, that, that's kind of the difference between us and a politician trying to sell you something, is that what we're trying to share is something that actually has true value and that we have to believe that God is using us and giving us that, that, that we're calling upon the authority of God to speak into somebody that needs to hear it, to speak into the world and changing something within creation. Even going into secular nations, going into secular people, people atheists and people that don't believe in God or have a walk or a faith or a testimony or anything like that, but that's what we do when we are called to evangelize and to speak to the people or to make disciples of the nations. That's what the Great Commission is all about. Moses had to believe this when he spoke to Pharaoh. He, God had to tell him. He didn't believe that he could do it. And there's some believers that actually are, are timid enough to say those same kind of things. Like, you know, you should go and you should share the gospel with the person that you run into uh, at the grocery store. And you bonk your card into theirs and you're supposed to talk to them. And, and, and sometimes people are, are spirit-led and they're like, oh, yeah, I can't believe it. We ran, I ran into somebody at the grocery store and we just got to talking and, 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 and suddenly I was able to share what church I go to and minister to them. And there's some people that are very comfortable with that. And they have a heart of an evangelist to do that. Now, some of us are also maybe more timid to do that. We should get out there on the streets and share the gospel. It's like, oh, I don't know if I can do that. I'm probably going to say something wrong and it's not going to work. And that's the excuse of Moses and saying, I can't speak very good. I'm not a man of many words. I've uncircumcised lips and I don't know how to do it. But Moses chose who was going to do that job. Or I'm sorry, God chose who was going to do that job. And that person was Moses. God said to him, I will make you as God to Pharaoh. That's almost like, and, and, and he believed it. Then he went in before Pharaoh. He did it. He, he, that's, this is what he needed to hear, and this is what God spoke to them. And so what we have to do for anybody that's ever timid in sharing the word of the Lord, whether it's the kid for the first time who's standing up on stage and giving a devotion for the very first time, even if it's just five minutes long, but he's nervous and he's standing up and he's sharing a devotion to his congregation for the very first time or sharing a word or an, of encouragement, or it's somebody who's timid about going and doing this. It's all like they, what they need to hear, they need to hear somebody coming up to them, come up to your ear and whisper and say, look, you got this. Let the Lord give you the authority to speak these words. Set yourself aside. I know you think you're going to mess up. I know you think you're not going to speak very well. But the Lord is with you. He Call upon His authority to speak His word, and you'll do great. 
Just let the Lord speak through you and, and, and just set yourself aside, but give the, that person that is needing that encouragement the way Moses appears to have needed it and to say, look, you're calling upon the authority of heaven and earth. You're not doing it under your own power. And God will make you to appear as one who is speaking His Word, to appear as the one carrying the Word of God. And that was the miracle that Moses had when he appeared before Pharaoh, and that's the miracle that each and every one of us as believers have when we are put in the opportunity to speak and share the Word of the Lord, whether that's to your neighbor that you're waving as they're taking the trash out or whether that's in the grocery store or wherever you might be running into people, share the Word of the Lord. Speak what God has said. And we call upon that authority. And we can learn that by, once again, the example of Moses and how he appeared before Pharaoh. And the whole goal of this always was to make Pharaoh know who was the Lord. The whole thing was this. He went into Pharaoh and he says, uh, Pharaoh, let my people go. I call upon Adonai, God of the Hebrews. And he says, I don't know who this God is. And he said, well, uh, the whole goal of all of this, God called, speaking to Moses in the burning bush, so that I will make myself known to the Egyptians. It's not just the goal to free the, the children of Israel, but to make himself known and make himself known he did. Now, this is one of the other passages that, uh, that connects to our Torah portion here, traditional Brit Hadashah portion. If you would now, turn with me to 2 Corinthians um, chapter 6, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yes, chapter 6, starting at verse 14. This is starting to speak about God and His power and His... When, when God shows up somewhere, what is it? there are certain things that are not allowed to be in the presence of God. God will say, and we'll learn about this in many Torah portions here in the future, about cleanliness, and that God will not make His presence known in a place where there is any uncleanness. And the power of God is coming down and making Himself known to the Egyptians and to all the people. Now, here's the thing about God. God does not find Himself in parallel, in fellowship with any other God. You, the way, when you confess your faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there's a stipulation to that that you're going to believe in Him as the one and only true God. You cannot call upon Him as God, but then you also believe in these other gods, and you give honor and reverence to these other gods. This is what got Balaam in a whole lot of trouble, is that, yeah, he recognized, you know, yod heh vav heh God of the Hebrews, as, as, a, as God, but then he also fellowshiped and worshiped with all of these other gods, and that's not the way this works. When you find yourself in fellowship with God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you cannot find yourself in fellowship with any other God that is not Him. This is why the judgments came upon Egypt. This is why he was making himself known to the Egyptians and why he, to make himself known to the Egyptians, he had to show all the other gods of the Egyptians that they were not God. They were not, they didn't hold power, they did not have, hold any authority, and that he is the one true God, that he cannot be found in fellowship with any of these other things. He is to be worshipped only him. Now, this is... The words of it here in 2 Corinthians in this passage that's specifically talking about how this, this comparison, how these two things cannot uh, work with one another. So let me read here verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. 
For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part of the believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises... Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. This is what the purpose of the plagues were, and this is in all the study. In, in our Torah portion for this week, we have, I think, the first seven of the plagues listed for us in our Torah portion. And it starts going in and describing how they came about and Moses going before Pharaoh, and this is what he said, and Pharaoh sends them out, and then the plague happens, and then the children, then the Egyptians, you know, cry and scream, and, and, and then the plague goes away, and sometimes the magicians are able to replicate it, sometimes not. And so in all of this, though, in these plagues, of course, we have a great understanding that God was creating a great deal of fear among the Egyptians introducing himself in a way that he's perfecting holiness in them by the fear of God. Once again, separating this is God and all these frogs that are jumping around, they're not God. This God is controlling that, and when you cry out to that God, then this God goes away. doesn't happen anymore. And this is causing all of this destruction and, and, and anguish there in the land of Egypt. So all of these things, in, in learning from this and through the course of these plagues, God is separating who He is from any other God that you might think and believe in. The other thing that He's separating is this, because in all the plagues, the children of Israel in their houses did not suffer the same judgments as the Egyptians did. There were frogs in the land of Egypt, but in the children of Israel in their houses, there wasn't any plagues. He was separating out who was His people. See, all these other Egyptians, they had found themselves in fellowship with all of these other gods. With all these other gods, the god of the Nile and the god of wild beasts and the gods of the dust of the earth and the cattle, uh, Hathor, the god of cows and, and all of these other gods they found in fellowship with. So you know what? God then made and saw like, that's what you want to worship? Here it is, a plague of exactly the thing that they thought was great proving it's not so great. The children of Israel didn't fellowship with those gods. Those gods didn't, those plagues did not make themselves known in the household of the Israelites. So this is, once again, this separation that God is making. He is making a distinction and a separation. Now, on this same premise, there's another passage that I want to take you to. In Luke chapter 11, that is all along the same lines as this. And, and we'll, I'll flip over here to Luke chapter 11, but then I also need to go back to our Torah portion here, specifically on the plague of lice. The plague of lice was, was fascinating for a couple of reasons. One, it was um, it, talking about whether it truly was lice or gnats or that it was the, um, uh, you know, that it, was, that it came up from the dust of the earth. That when, he, when this, this plague came, Moses took the staff and he stretched it out and he struck the dust of the earth, or Aaron, I believe it was, that struck the dust of the earth. 
And the dust, it all became lice on man and beast. So what was dirt on the ground, suddenly it came alive and then started crawling. Pretty scary stuff, if, you, if I do say so myself. And, uh, and this is the one, this is the first of the plagues. It's the third plague, but it's the first of the plagues where it specifically said the magicians who worked enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not do it. The other two before, the, the, the frogs or the water becoming blood or, or the snake, the staff being turned into the serpent or whatever, these were all magic tricks and the magician said, yeah, we can do this. And so then they performed some kind of illusion uh, that was able to convince Pharaoh that they were able to replicate this. But this was the first of the plagues, making it unique, that they could not replicate it. And this is specifically what they said. This is the testimony of the magicians of Egypt. It says this, verse 19 of Exodus 8. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord said. The finger of God. So this is when, you know, it's always fascinating when you actually see somebody recognizing the Spirit of God. I said this before about the Pharaoh that met Joseph, and that Pharaoh recognized the Spirit of God inside Joseph. Or that when somebody, an unbeliever, uh, an atheist, somebody who doesn't believe in God, suddenly then recognizes this is God. This is the testimony of the centurion at the base of the cross. Remember, he's the one who saw the tombs open, the earth shake, the veil rent, doing all these things. And he's sitting there at the base of the cross and watching this man be crucified. And it's his testimony that he says, surely this was the Son of God. How great and powerful of testimony is that, is that when you have unbelievers testifying to something about God. This is what we have here. The magicians declaring that this plague was the finger of God. The finger of God. Fascinating. This is on one of only two places in all of Scripture that this reference of the finger of God is even mentioned. If you haven't figured it out already, it's in Luke chapter 11 that the Messiah references the finger of God. Let me begin here at verse 14 of Luke chapter 11 where we have a story about the Messiah here. And he, the Messiah, was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was, when the demon had gone out and the mute spoke, that the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, the Messiah, knowing their thoughts, he said this, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you said, I cast out demons by Beelzebub, and, it, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Amazing, fascinating passage of Scripture. You might be able to already see some of the things I've already been saying about how God is separating Himself from anything that is not of God. 
that where he is dividing that he is God and the gods of Egypt, they're not God. And so it's, it's interesting by this reference of the finger of God. When you think of that, the finger of God, you're like, ah, oh, that's not very much. If God came down and touched the dust of the earth and the whole thing became, and all the dust of the earth became uh, gnats and, and, and lice among it, you're like, oh my gosh, if that's the finger of God, then what can the whole hand of God do? Or what can some other part of God do that when you're just talking about the finger of God? And that's what the Messiah here, you have that same sort of reference when it says, but I cast out demons with the finger of God. You, you almost want to say the word merely. With just merely the finger of God, I cast out demons. It gives honor and reverence to the power of God. Because if he's doing this with just his finger, what can the whole rest of him do? And that's kind of what the magicians were saying there as well. That it's all like, look, this is just the first of power that we're seeing here. This is merely the finger of God. And look what's going on. And the finger of God, it's interesting that we have these, this parallel here. Is it's kind of talking about the same thing. Once again, it's the finger of God that you can kind of see. Just picture in your mind God when He's separating something out. If you're, if, if you're using your finger to just sort of divide something here, if you're counting coins on a table, if, if I may, that you'd just be sort of sliding fingers. You're sliding these ones over here and these ones over here. And that's the way that God would separate something. Who is his people and who is not his people? What is, in Egypt here, these are my people here, the ones that aren't receiving the plague, but these ones over here, these are the ones who are not my people. It's, an, it's about dividing. It's about d- dividing what is and separating what is of God and what is not. And it's fascinating here about what Messiah is specifically saying here in Luke 11. Also, hear what he's saying here. A kingdom divided against itself will fall because this is what he was doing with the Egyptians. The magicians that you know, couldn't do this right here, he was causing them to think, wait a minute, this, this is God. This is the one true God. They're then going to Pharaoh and saying, look, God, this is the finger of God. We can't do this. There's no other God that's doing this. And you see the division between themselves. This is the, the first crack in the Egyptian line of thinking that their gods are more powerful than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the first couple of Egyptians that are turning to Pharaoh and saying, wait a minute now, and suddenly the kingdom of Egypt is divided against itself, all because merely the finger of God is bringing a plague upon them. This is what happened in Egypt, and this is what the Messiah is talking about here about when you, we're also talking about spiritual warfare here. We're talking about who is God, who has power, who has authority, who has all of these things. And this is what we're talking about here, dividing the enemy against itself so that then it will fall. And this was the beginning of the end for the Egyptians. This is when the plagues became more and more severe. It was only Pharaoh left that began hardening his heart and refusing to let the people go. But what God was doing by merely His finger was starting to divide the Egyptians against themselves. This is one another one of those miracles that happened that, caught, that allowed for this exodus to take place. All right, my time is getting a little short, but I have a couple more passages here in the New Testament I want to talk about. If we would, turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Once again, this is another uh, traditional reading of, uh, for this Torah portion, but I want to cover this as well. So Romans chapter 9 at verse 14, 
This is when it's, talk, it's referencing a couple of things that are going on in this portion. Once again, the interactions between Moses and Pharaoh, where he's saying this, and he says, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Once again, can unrighteousness be in the same presence of God? This is still some of the same, uh, same theme going on here. Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whoever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whoever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Because once again, with all of this, with the plagues coming upon the Egyptians, God was still merciful to the Egyptians. Do you realize the power of God, what he could have done to them? But instead, he showed himself with these plagues, causing people to turn their hearts away from these other gods and to follow after the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What mercy God had to not just wipe them out as unbelievers. And it says this, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, this is verse uh, 17 of uh, Romans chapter 9, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. This is a direct reference to Exodus chapter 9 at verse 16. This was in one of the plagues that this was what Moses declared to Pharaoh and said this is when Pharaoh was hardening his heart. This is when Pharaoh was not, uh, was not following after, not turning his heart to the Lord, hardening his heart, and that now the, point, the finger started being pointed to Pharaoh. It wasn't being pointed to the other Egyptians and to the uh, magicians. It's being pointed right at Pharaoh, and he says that I have raised you up that I may show my power and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Once again, the goal of all these plagues is so that God's power may be shown and may be known. That's the warning to anybody who ever has been found themselves to be in a position of leadership. God has raised you up so that His power may be shown, not your own not by your power, especially in the Egyptian culture, it was, they were born into it. They were born into a certain family and, and the dynasties and all these different things. And it's all like so some of these people became rulers and came into to leadership, not by works or by, you know, their bravado. It was just they were born and it was given to them. But it was still God's authority that ever raised up any pharaoh of Egypt or any king of any nation that has ever existed. And the whole plan of all of this is that God is made known and shown through the power and the authority and the leadership that He establishes. This is what is being said to Pharaoh. This is what is being spoken to him and saying, Pharaoh, you are in this place and you are in this position and all of these things are happening so that God may be shown to all people. Once again, the purpose of the plagues, the purpose of Moses being sent. The children of Israel getting released from bondage is actually just a byproduct and just a bonus. It's the cherry on top of the idea that God is making Himself known to the world, even those that don't believe in Him. Believe you me, by the time He's done with Egypt, there will be plenty of Egyptians that believe in Him, that declare Him to be the one true God. But it's being spoken here directly to Pharaoh that Paul is quoting here in Romans, is again, once again, pointing to the fact of God's power and His authority over all things that are not of Him, and that you will not find Him in the same presence. And, but Pharaoh, of course, in the course of the story, he is hardening his heart, hardening his heart to the point to where 
he is not receiving the Lord. And our Torah portion ends with still more plagues to come. And the last thing I want to conclude is this. In Luke chapter 14, we have, you know, one of the, one of the most quoted probably phrases that the Messiah ever spoke. But it's a spiritual principle that even, even people who are secular, don't believe in God, understand this principle. And it's that he spoke here in a parable of when you go to somebody's feast, or particularly a wedding feast. And so in Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 7, it says this, So he, Yeshua, told a parable to those who were invited, when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, When you are invited to anyone, by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come to say to you, give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes and he may say to you, friend, go up higher, then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. Verse 11, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is about, once again, that whether you find yourself in a position of leadership or you find yourself really in any sort of circumstance, take the humble approach so that the Lord might come by your master, the master of the universe, of heaven and earth, might come and exalt you. Present yourself as somebody who is filled with humility and, and reverence and honor to, to lines of authority and, and where and so it's like when you come in, you sit and you're just like, yeah, sit, wait to be seated. Go to the place that doesn't have any position or authority yet so that when God comes along, He will exalt you to the appropriate place. But if you exalt yourself, if you think that you, what, what you have done out of the power of your own bravado about your own ability to speak or to teach and not by the authority of God that you've somehow earned something or have arrived and you sit there and you sit down at the place of authority right there at the top of the, at the, at the head table, then the master comes along and you get to then get raised, stood up, you get to take the walk of shame down to the place where you actually belong. Take the humble approach. Pharaoh was needing to learn this. Everyone else had finally humbled up by the time God is making His power and His, His authority known in the land of Egypt. Everybody else had understood this all like, I'm, I'm going to take a step back from this priesthood of this other God that I worship or whatever that I thought used to be great, and I'm going to go ahead and humble up to whatever I'm seeing now. Pharaoh still wouldn't do it. Now, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, it does say in the Scripture that God hardened Pharaoh's heart perhaps because there was still more of His glory to be made known to the Egyptians. There was still more evidence, more people needed convincing. And so this is why the plagues continued. This is why the story continues on. But what is truly happening here, once again, God making Himself known and that He's using Pharaoh in this process to show the power and the glory of God and that Pharaoh could have had the opportunity to lead his people to humble himself before God. But instead, he continued to harden his heart and exalt him. Well, guess what? The household of Pharaoh was humbled. Not by his own choice, not because he did it on his own, but because he had exalted himself, the master of the universe had to come and humble him and take him to the lowly seat where he truly belonged. That's what is going on in our Torah portion here. And that is, again, the words of the Messiah 
that are teaching us this spiritual principle that has parallels not only with how Pharaoh uh, reacted in our Torah portion, but also speaking into the future of anyone who is needing the un instruction and understanding. Take the humble approach so that in the time, in the appropriate time, in the appropriate place, you will be exalted by your master, the one you are in covenant with, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So with that said, that is our Brit Hadashah portion for this week. And I pray that you were blessed by it and pray you have a wonderful rest of your Sabbath. Let us go before the Lord one last time. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your teaching, your instruction, for all your words. And Father, for the examples of the stories of old and for the words of the Messiah, Lord, and also of the Apostle Paul and all the other writers of the New Testament, Father, I thank you, Lord, for their words, their heart, their instruction, Lord. May those words continue to penetrate our hearts. Instruct us, Lord, in your ways, in the ways of righteousness and justice. And Father, I pray that we would always learn on the power and authority that you have, Lord. May we submit to that power and authority. And Father, may you use us in our walk, Lord, to speak your words and your instructions. Make us like Moses, Lord, to our neighbors and to our friends and to our family, Lord, that they would see your power and your glory through the things that we say, not because we've earned it, Lord, for ourselves, but because you have bestowed it upon us as a blessing and you have commissioned us to do that work as you did at the end of your stay on this earth. So, Father, we love you, we bless you, and we thank you for everything that you do in our lives. Lead us and guide us with your Holy Spirit. May it always be your words that are taught and spoken and shared from our lips. And may we die unto ourselves each and every day to make room for you. So we love you, we bless you, and thank you. In Yeshua's name, amen. Shabbat shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.